Hello, this is Daryl. We've got a great show for you today. We do a quick review of Chelsea, Arsenal and all that Mustafi madness. And uh, then we've got seven listener questions to answer, including what if Antonio Conte managed the US men's national team? You heard that right. But first, today's episode of the Total Sock Show is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options and ETFs right from your phone. You can even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. And with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon and Tesla for as little as one American And that's with no commission fees or account minimums. So join the 10 million Robinhood users. Uh, Get started with a free stock by going to totalsucker.robinhood.com. That's totalsucker.robinhood.com. Here's the disclosures. All investments involve risk. This is not investment advice. Don't take investment advice from me. It's not a recommendation. It's not a solicitation of any security. Other fees may apply. Visit rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations. Annual percentage yield on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. And in case you didn't know, Robinhood Financial is not a bank. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who knows whether or not Robin Hood Financial is a bank. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello, it obviously is. It is not. <laughs> we should be really clear. We should be clear. It is not. It is not. It is not 100%. But we can say that mm. Chelsea Arsenal was an entertaining soccer match. It was. It definitely right? was. <laughs> Albeit confusing and erratic and yeah. uh, high intensity. All of those things. But we're going to make sense of it. Yes. So we're going to start today's show with a quick-ish mm-hmm. by Total Soccer Show standards review of Chelsea Only 40 Arsenal. I just realised, or we realised, we haven't sat down together and mm-hmm. analysed a game in a little while. No, right? we've not. Yeah, it's, so been, we just, it's, it's been a good long time. We want to get uh, match sharp again before the, the next uh, US, uh, <laughs> the US women's national team CONCACAF yep. Olympic qualifiers come mm-hmm. around and the US men's team friendly against Costa Rica. And then we have seven listener questions to answer on today's show. It's we'll going to be, be a busy one. We'll be match fit by the end. We this, will. This is our January camp. This is also uh, being recorded as Manchester United are presently losing to Burnley, so I'm going to try to ignore that and not worry about it at all. Please don't. This is not a Manchester United show. Put them out of your head. All right. Everything will be fine in like 20 Do you want a score years. update? No, thank okay. you. I really don't. Um, all right. <laughs> so first up, Chelsea, one, no. Chelsea Arsenal yeah. finished 2-2. It was a banger. I would argue mm-hmm. it was a banger sort of because of the David Luiz red card set, sent things nice and wild. But I'd even argue this was going to be a good game no matter what, based on what we saw in the first 25 minutes. You mean Fair? just the way that both, both teams, I think, first off with the derby, with like, you know, the London rivalry there, I think that always ratchets things up. And I think as a result, you're always going to get like crazy high intensity and a difficult first 10 minutes if you are trying to analyze it tactically, because yeah. it's just sort of all over the place. But I think it's also about the managers. But right? then I think it's also about the managers and the way they set their teams out with yeah. high blocks, high pressure more or less consistently yeah. means a lot of players with not much time on the ball but still trying to play out when Good at all players possible with yeah. not much time on the ball being put to the test and trying to play out so and also a, Mustafi it was exciting to watch yes and also Mustafi mm-hmm. alright let's get straight to it so what uh, 26 minute David Luiz is sent off for a red card mm-hmm. he has to foul he do, actually he doesn't have to foul he does foul he does foul. Tammy Abraham in the box we'll maybe talk about the red card but it was definitely Mustafi's fault yes right as Jorginho plays the 
ball forward. No, sorry, Kovacic plays the ball forward. Mm-hmm. Mustafi tries to hook it back to Leno and basically doesn't get enough on it. But again, we're only 26 minutes in. This wasn't even Mustafi's first mistake on the ball in the entire game. No, right? He had a rough uh, quarter of a soccer match. He definitely did. And that kind of extended throughout the rest of the game. Yeah. Maybe not as severely. But I also think from watching this that it feels like Chelsea set up to allow Mustafi to have time on the ball. They, they wanted knew, him right? to be the ball-playing centre-back, not yeah. Dom Luiz. So every time Mustafi had the ball, you could see him slightly panicking. He was the one player that looked like he couldn't mm. play um, in that high-intensity, got-to-find-passes mode. I think in that first 25 minutes, he gave the ball away at least twice by directly passing it to Chelsea players mm-hmm. and made sort of unwise or panicky passes um, outside of that as well. This is like sort of on the fly I'm making this connection because I agree with everything that you just said. We only I only watch this once. Normally, if we're going to go in-depth, we watch twice. But if I were, were to watch it again, I would even go so far as to wonder and pay attention to are Chelsea deliberately not engaging? Because we've talked previously about how Mikel Arteta has wanted his players to like wait for the other team to engage before you try to play the ball. Yeah. And it did seem like with Mustafi, Chelsea gave him more time than anyone else on the field. And I wonder if that was because they were sort of like, all right, man, you got the ball. Go ahead and try to dribble forward. We'll see what happens. Yeah. And, it, and as a result, he kind of overthought, I think, panicked a little bit on occasion and made bad mistakes, none more so than this own goal, yep. when he tries to kind own of goal. Over, over the shoulder play it backwards to, uh, to uh, Leno, I think yep. is what he's going for, but doesn't end up getting any power behind it. So it's easily intercepted, and then you have the necessary foul slash maybe unnecessary foul. So yeah, Tammy Abram is essentially through on goal. He mm-hmm. goes past Leno very yep. easily. He's at a bit of an angle. Mm-hmm. David Luiz is chasing him down. Then David Luiz essentially because he's behind him, decides to go through the back of him. I think it's a horrible mm-hmm. David Luiz decision because he could have made a uh, at least an attempt to block the ball going at goal and he wouldn't have got sent off, right? I mean, if he even... If he even- like slid in from behind and it was a bad foul and a, and like going to be a penalty even by sliding in and trying to play the ball I think it then yeah. becomes a yellow card because he's making a play on the ball yeah the, the, Premier, League guide, the Premier League guidelines are that it's a, there's the double jeopardy thing where you can't mm-hmm. get sent off if it's also a penalty kick provided you're making a fair and reasonable attempt I yeah. think that's the language uh, to play the ball or to win the ball and I think because he just like clatters into him from behind there's no case that he's making a fair and reasonable attempt no. to play the ball. And also kind of like shoves him in the back to begin with. So yeah. gives it away right away. Like, yeah, I'm okay with conceding the foul. And I think if I were to like be maybe a bit harsh on David Luiz, I would say that I wonder if he maybe even forgot that you can still get a red card for that type of incident because he, he gets seems up. seems to argue afterwards, right? And then yeah. I think realizes very quickly like, oh, right, I can't do that. You That's know, not good. You know the problem? David Luiz is not Uruguayan. <laughs> Uruguayans are the best at uh, defensive foul cost yeah. benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. David Luiz, not quite so good. Not quite Brazilian. so good. Not quite so good. Uh, <laughs> may I, I have one more question about the sequence, unless yeah. you have more to say about the kind of uh, conceding of the penalty itself. Well, just the only thing I have to say is I feel like this is another classic David Luiz mm-hmm. moment where he's made one rash decision because he's been put in a terrible position, right. and the highlight reel makes him look really bad, mm-hmm. where it's actually someone else's fault. And yeah. I, I really, I'm a bit of a David Luiz defender. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. I think he's actually a decent defender. I think 
think he's very good bringing the ball out of the back. We saw him a couple of weeks ago uh, play that ball uh, into Ozil, I think, that ends up with the um, Lacazette or Aubameyang goal against Crystal Palace. Uh, and I just feel like there, there are these moments where he looks very bad because he makes these rash decisions. But I think if he's got better pieces around him, like in Chelsea's championship winning season, um, he actually can be a magnificent player. But this is one of, this is one of those uh, mm-hmm. less good David Luiz moments. I think maybe being less, less generous than you are right now, a couple of weeks ago on the Weekend Review... I think I just categorized him as a very entertaining player in yeah. both the best possible way and worst possible I way if you're an Arsenal that. fan. I wouldn't disagree yeah. with that. But yours is maybe a little bit nicer to say that he is very good <laughs> if you put him in the right situation. Well, don't put him next to Mustafi, for one thing. Right? If you <laughs> yeah. put him next to someone who can't really play the ball out of the back mm-hmm. and isn't that good of a defender, it's maybe too much on David Luiz's shoulders. I think he's like an excellent addition to an already very good team. Yeah. He's not, it's not great when he's your best defender. I would agree with that. I would, I would definitely agree that it was not a very good pass from Mustafi back to Leno. That's the one that gets intercepted. My question for you, when we went back and watched this a couple times, the Kovacic ball that he hits into the path that eventually becomes into the path of Tammy Abraham, does he mean to play that ball forward or is he just using the outside of his foot to sort of clear the ball? I think he's under a lot of pressure mm-hmm. and cleverly uses the, it's like an outside of the foot volley. Yeah. I think he's aiming to just bang it for Tammy Abraham to, that to chase after. And he kind of overhits it, but it works out nicely because then the opportunity is there for Mustafi to try or that. did he just dunk. know that it was Mustafi? Maybe. <laughs> and maybe he's like, all right, I'm aiming for Tammy Abraham, but if yeah. it goes to Mustafi, then that's good too. <laughs> Either way. Either way, something will happen. So, uh, Arsenal are 1-0 down after Jorginho scores the penalty. Good penalty. They're down to 10 men. I would argue Arsenal make the very smart decision to just say, okay, 4-4-1 is what we're going to adapt to. um, And we're just going to sit in a low block and we're going to defend, survive, and just counter a little bit when it's on until halftime. So they they just see out those 20 minutes. I think it was a very good, like, stop the bleeding 20 minutes. And I would agree, and I would extend it to, you can see the impact that Mikel Arteta has already had, that his team, it's really difficult when you're playing the style and system that Arsenal appeared to be playing, which was much more aggressive, go at Chelsea, try to put them under pressure, make them The original 4-2-3-1, go after them, yeah. To then switch it and have everybody sit in and do the low block, but have everybody do it more or less successfully. I've seen Arsenal teams fall apart in this situation. And I think that speaks volumes to the impact he has had and how on board so many of those players are that Lacazette is happy to drop in and do the defensive work and do what needs to be done to get to halftime so that then they can make little adjustments if they need to. Ozil, going from uh, a number 10 in a 4-2-3-1, went to just the second midfielder alongside Lucas Torreira, Mm -hmm. right? Shaka went and played centre-back and did a fine job of just heading things away and being pretty good on the ball, right? So he almost replaces David Luiz as the ball-playing centre-back and Mustafi just continues to be Mustafi. Well, except Mustafi (laughs) has an assist, let us not forget. He does later on. It's all Mustafi. So the smart little change Arteta makes at half time is he keeps the same shape mm-hmm. right 4-4-1 but I think the instruction is to just be a bit more adventurous maybe occasionally go into a higher block when it's on mm-hmm. uh, maybe to uh, ask Saka to start overlapping Martinelli because you can't just defend and counter your way from 1-0 down yeah. right so it's a, it's a smart decision to go a bit more aggressive second half but not you know not throw everything forward and get yourself in trouble again it's, it's the nuances there because like Saka I think early in the second half has a very aggressive run forward and if it's just a player making a run forward, if it's just Martinelli just making a run and trying to make something happen, then it's an individual player doing an individual thing. But I think to your point, when it is more of a, I want everyone to take a few more risks, but I also want everyone to be aware that other players are taking risks, then when Saka makes that run, you can see other players dropping in. You can see the cover there, and it's still a cohesive game plan as yeah. opposed to just try some stuff when you can and see what happens. <laughs> and with the cohesion comes, I think, again, more buying in, more of a sort of defensively stalwart performance 
performance of, hey, we, everybody's got to fight for everything. And I think that's partially to explain for the goal itself. Well, they couldn't really have planned for the way Martinelli I know what you're talking about. scores the equalizer mm-hmm. in the 63rd minute, right? It's a Chelsea corner mm-hmm. and Mustafi yep. heads it away. Martinelli is on the end of it, sort of in his own defensive third. And basically just starts dribbling, takes a very heavy touch through the middle that N'Golo Conte should just take off him, right? Because mm-hmm. that ball's played too, way too far ahead of Martinelli, which seemed to be a bit of a flaw in his game, right? Even going down the wing sometimes, he would play it a little too far ahead of himself. And then N'Golo Conte, for want of a better phrase, Stephen Gerrard's, yes. right? Where he's just turning to go and get the ball, slips, and suddenly Martinelli's through. I'm going to be harsh on Martinelli and favorable to N'Golo Kante here. And I almost think if you watch the way Kante is shaping up, because it is uh, it is Martinelli, but then he also has, I believe, Pepe running with him. It might be Lacazette. I forget which one. But he has that sort of option. N'Golo Kante, I think, recognizes, OK, I'm going to have to kind of close the gap, but not let that pass come on. And you can see him sort of trying to do the math on where he needs to be. And yeah. then in a half second, it's like, oh, that's a really heavy touch. I might be able to get that. But I think because he's... to change direction, right? Yeah. When he makes that calculation, exactly. he changes direction. Exactly. And, so and loses his foot, and that's why it's so. It's not it's the turf quite, fault. Yeah, it's not quite so bad as just like oh, he squares up and then gets beat. It's sort of I think he's shaping up to do the kind of defensive slow it down and see if I can slow down this counter to yeah. allow people to get back in. Oh, but maybe I can make a play at the same time. And yep. I think when you're caught in those two minds, you end up on the floor. And then the only other person you could like maybe throw some blame at is Emerson. Yep. You spotted this right? Emerson was running with Martinelli. But as Martinelli looks like he's about to be dispossessed by Kante, Mm -hmm. Emerson slows up a bit. Because I think, to be fair, if you've played with Kante for a few years, like Emerson has, you kind of expect him to just take the ball. Yeah. And so if you're expecting that, then you're going to slow up to make sure that you're in a supporting position in case Kante gets it, but that you also don't want to just sprint backwards and then you've suddenly broken an offside line that could be there. So I I think he could be forgiven for that little bit of a slowdown, especially when, yeah, you would not have expected N'Golo Kante to end up on the floor. But then there was no catching it, right? Mm -hmm. Because Emerson did not have that half a yard or half a second to yeah. uh, to wait to give up on. He never catches Martinelli no. again. And Martinelli, one, one. and Martinelli with a good finish could also have uh, squared it if he wanted to. So I think either way, this was going to end in a goal yep. once N'Golo Kante slips. But still, a goal for Martinelli and an assist for Mustafi is oh, probably yeah. good for both of them. <laughs> so then, towards the end of the game, yep. um, Arteta is like, all right, 1-1 one, one at Stamford Bridge with 10 men. I'll take it. Holding's fit enough to get back on the field. We'll get him in. I'll, I can't remember who comes off. Uh, uh, might be Ozil, maybe? I think it was Ozil, yeah. Uh, but, oh, no, it's Ozil for Genduzi. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Pepe. He brings off yes, Pepe. Thank you. And brings in an extra centre-back and essentially plays five, what would you call it, 5-3-1? Yes. Yeah, basically, I think five, so. 5-3-1 three, for the remainder mm-hmm. of the game, just to, just to see it out. Um, but... It does. Is Sometimes right? it's even like a six-two-one at times. It's a very strange. It's essentially, formation. it's yes. three centre backs yes. anyway, and mm-hmm. they sacrifice a forward player yep. to just see out the game. But then instead, Chelsea score off the corner kick. Yep. This is the uh, Dave Aspilicueta, uh <laughs> goal on the corner kick. Yep. That even though Arteta, I think, made the right moves, this just sort of went against Arsenal in the moment. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, because and it's it's depending on a set piece. I increasingly don't buy into that narrative of like, oh, they're going to be so mad they concede on a set piece as though the other team also hasn't been prepping and setting up for to, to attack that set piece in a variety of different yeah, ways. Yeah. It always seems like an easy way to explain a team conceding on a corner. And here, I think given the way Arsenal had like battled and battled and battled and been able to hang on for so long, to concede on a set piece is maybe frustrating, but I don't know if it's any more frustrating than just conceding outright. But what happens next to me 
is fascinating. Yeah. So it's uh, Hector Bellerin mm-hmm. cuts inside. Uh, you know, I think it's his first game back mm-hmm. from injury. Oh, you're about for it? Yes, yes. For the goal, like he's so he's the right back, cuts inside, bends it in on his left foot as if he's like the Spanish fullback mm-hmm. Iron Robin. Um, yeah. But the the really interesting thing is Tammy Abraham, right? Mm-hmm. So even before Chelsea score their uh, go ahead goal mm-hmm. to make it two one, it's when forces the corner. To, yeah, oh yeah, when they win the corner, Tammy Abraham s- slides into the advertising board. Mm-hmm. We, it looks like he sprains his ankle. Right? Thank you for calling them boards because that's what they are, not hordes. I do not get that. <laughs> Your people are weird. Your people are weird. Um, so it slides into the uh, advertising Correct. hoarding. Yeah. Uh, we think sprains his ankle or some sort of ankle damage yeah. that has him hobbling mm-hmm. around. Um, even on the on the goal, the Aspilicueta goal, mm-hmm. it's Abraham just hobbling back from an offside position, yep. right? That's his full involvement mm-hmm. in the goal. Um, for the next couple of minutes... He immediately lays down while, while the rest of the Chelsea team right. celebrate. He is laying down in the middle of the 18. Problem is, Chelsea have no more mm-hmm. subs. So Tammy, Abra- Tammy Abraham um, alternates between hobbling around up front, lying on the ground, like wait, doing the uh, circle in the air, mm-hmm. asking for a sub or maybe just to be, to be brought off. I think he asked for a sub immediately after kickoff, probably not realizing that all three subs it's have been possible. made. And I yeah. think once he's told, because that's when he, he asks for a sub and then lays down. Yeah. And my guess is that he gets word that we don't have any more substitutions. And that's when he stands back up and keeps trying to play, even though he very visibly cannot. And here's what I'm going to say. It's not his fault. It's not Tammy Abraham's fault. But he plays a part. The Arsenal equalizer mm-hmm. is a result of Tammy Abraham's yep. injury and how Chelsea deal with it. I agree. Can you tell us why you feel that? I way? think there are multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. The first reason is that they leave Tammy Abraham up front as just the centre forward hobbling around, but still occasionally try to play long balls to him uh, to hold up. And like you know, Arsenal are really going for it. As soon as they're two on down, they're throwing things forward. They're just like, all right, there's what five minutes to go. Let's just let's just have at it. And then Chelsea will get the ball back, try and clear it. It's not going to stick to Tammy Abraham because he can't move. Right, he can't move mm-hmm. across. I would argue it's Michi- also like not a lot of times it's not to him, so it's not even it's that in it can't channels stick to him. Chase, right? Exactly. So just giving it back. It's like you guys can see me not being able to move, right? But you can also see that the Chelsea players don't know whether to play right. it out of bounds mm-hmm. or whether to keep playing. And Tammy Abram doesn't know whether he should go down and get the trainers on mm-hmm. or whether he should stand up and hobble around. It's, it's essentially panic spreads throughout the team because nobody knows what to do. Right, right? And, and it reminds me, if people didn't see the game, it reminds me of like the moment in a basketball game when the other team has scored you know, like a few points, like a few baskets in a row, and the other team just calls that timeout because it's like things are getting away from us. Yeah. They're getting into the kind of like— Chelsea needed a timeout. Yeah, they're heating up, if you will. And uh, and so I think Chelsea needed to slow it down. They should have booted that ball out of bounds. Maybe that comes from Lampard. Maybe it should have come from, I forget who their captain was, but whoever the captain maybe should have had a word. Say Aspilicueta. But I think because that would make sense, but because they don't, it kind of keeps this haphazard, frenetic pace, and there's no real cohesive game plan at that point. And they sort of invite Arsenal back into it. And you could even go to when Emerson gets the ball and clears it up into the channel for Abraham to theoretically run onto. If you go back and watch, it's Mason Mount telling him, play it long, play it long, play it long, when Mason Mount is open in space. And he easily could have received that yeah. ball unturned and tried to go forward a little bit. But I think Chelsea were so discombobulated because of the injury, because they've scored so late, and because Arsenal are now setting numbers forward, that they're just not able to calm down and play intelligent soccer and then if you go back and look at the Bellerin goal mm-hmm. it is yep. Hector Bellerin coming down the right and Emerson is defending him and Tammy essentially Emerson is defending the outside yeah. Tammy Abraham is defending the inside mm-hmm. Bellerin wisely 
cuts inside. Abraham can't go with him because mm-hmm. the poor man can't run. And then the shooting opportunity is there. Because he also screens Emerson. That's the other thing is Abraham, because he can't move, Emerson, when the cutback happens, tries to go oh, with it. Try and scramble across. But he has to get oh, around no. Abraham first and basically kind of stops and gives up thinking yeah. Abraham will be able to do it. But he doesn't. So while we were watching this, I said to you, you can't blame an experience because the, oh, there's only three real young players mm-hmm. on this team, right? It's Hudson Adoy, um, it's Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount. and it's Mason Mount. But if you go back and look, it's like Abraham who doesn't know what to do. It's Mason Mount who's telling Emerson to play it long to Abraham. Yep. So even though it's only a, a smattering of teenagers, I think it's enough for no one to quite know what to do and for those teenagers to make enough mistakes that they let Arsenal back into the game. Yeah, absolutely. And even Mason Mount, I would say, he he lets uh, like the overlapping run go by him. He stays in the kind of space where uh, Bellerin ends up getting the ball, ends up shooting from. He but chases Ganduzi. He chases Ganduzi, which probably didn't need to happen because, again, Ganduzi is dribbling maybe across the box 25 yards out, sort of, and there's all the Chelsea players set up to defend that. So short of Ganduzi cutting back, taking his time, and then blasting a shot, which somebody would have closed down, I don't think Mason Mount needed to do that because the space he vacates then has to be defended and the person who ends up having to try to fill that space is Tammy Abraham oh all right so I'm gonna say a thrilling game I genuinely enjoyed it you saw sort of the highs and lows of Chelsea and their Mm -hmm. inexperience but also why they're fun to watch Uh, we're looking forward to Pulisic coming back by the way still injured Um, and you saw I think you saw a bit of the steel of Arsenal which is a thing Mikel Arteta has been trying to instill yeah and it's not a thing that you would always say about Arsenal you would not use that descriptive adjective for Mm -hmm. them Um, the the one constant is that they should sell Mustafi (laughs) that is constant across coaches I feel like Maybe they're just never going to be able to get rid of him until that contract expires. We'll he's, see. Gonna, he's going to haunt the Emirates. I mean, if you watch this game, why would you <laughs> sign him? Um, but I would, I would add, like, this is not a novel thing to say, but I think it's worth repeating here that in a 2-2 draw... Uh, Arsenal are definitely going to be the happier team, obviously because they have the the man down, but they're able to fight back. They get a point on the road at Stamford Bridge. But the biggest thing for me, we talked about how they respond to going behind by dropping in. Everybody buys into the system. They defend really well. They make adjustments at halftime. But when you've done all that, when you have battled and battled and battled, we've been in these games. When your opponent scores in the 84th minute, as Chelsea do... There's that feeling of like, oh, well, that's it. And they've made the changes. They've brought out some attacking players. They've brought in defensive players. It feels in that moment like, oh, that's it. Like, there's no way they're going to be able to get back into this. That they immediately respond and send numbers forward and back themselves to make something happen and end up making something happen has to make you feel optimistic if you're an Arsenal fan that they now have that skill, they have that fight that maybe they didn't have uh, recently, certainly didn't have under the end of the Unai Emery term. I would agree, but I also think the advertising hoarding was their 11th (laughs) match. I agree. Even though I don't like that word. All right. So, um, Most today, I don't understand that word. I just don't like that word. <laughs> because David Luiz was trying to sort of knock, knock Tammy Abraham around early on, right? Do you remember him yes. going through the back of him early yes. on? Yeah. So he gets sent off, but the advertising board does the job for him later in the game. I have one more Mustafi thing to say. I have to say it. Do, you, right. do you remember that when David Luiz gets the red card, he's laying on the ground and then somebody kicks the ball into him as he's sitting there? That's yeah. Mustafi. So Mustafi not only gives the ball away, but then is like, I'll give you the ball now. Is that helpful? It's not. It's really not. It's not showdown. All right, now I'll stop. All right, so we have seven listener questions mm-hmm. to get to. But first, we have a new sponsor. Um, if you told me this sponsor was sponsoring the show a couple of years ago, I would have we thought made it. we were in podcast heaven. Mm-hmm. We were joining Mark Maron because it's stamps.com. Mm-hmm. Let's face it. Most New Year's resolutions are hard to keep. Get more exercise, save more money. We'll have a resolution that's easy to 
keep. Stop wasting time going to the post office. Use stamps.com instead. Right. Taylor, please tell the nice people what you can do with stamps.com. Uh, you can not go outside, which is an important feature right now. I think it's 21 degrees here in Richmond. Yep. If you don't want to walk in the – and it's a city, right? So you've got all the big buildings which leads to a lot of wind coming through. You don't want to be in a wind tunnel that's 21 degrees. You can stay inside nice and warm, drink your coffee, use your, your scale, send your packages that way, and let, then let the, uh, the postal carriers – deal with the uh, the wind and snow, as is their creed. A nice, even, um, artificial 70 degrees Fahrenheit yeah. is what you want when you're doing your postage. Or 90 sometimes so, in this building, but whatever. <laughs> well, when we have control of yeah. it, in my home, yeah, if we're here, it's whatever the building yeah. manager decides. Any, any number multiplied by 10. I want the sauna today. <laughs> so stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service mm-hmm. right to your computer. Um, so you can uh, print official U.S. postage 24-7, any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Mm-hmm. Uh, with stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. It's a so- no brainer. Saves you time and money. Mm-hmm. And that's why 700,000 small businesses already use stamps.com. Incredible that it's a perfectly round number. Really? Right, exactly. I know. They, they only keep it at that number. Oh, to be fair, the copy says over 700,000. Okay, there we go. There we go. I apologize for my pedantry. Daryl apologizes. I will just say, give yourself a resolution you can actually keep this year. Stop going to the post office and go to stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with our promo code TSS, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus a free postage, uh, plus free postage, excuse me, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. So go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in TSS. That's stamps.com. Go to the microphone, click it, use the promo code TSS. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again, especially not when it's 21 degrees outside, or conversely, this summer when it's going to be 95 degrees in pure humidity, you can stay inside in the air conditioning as well. We're pro-hermitry. It will still be 90 degrees in our office, but at least you don't have to go outside at that point. Are you ready? For seven questions, I suppose. Taylor Rockwell. I suppose okay. I'm ready. Okay, so these have been sent to totalsoccershow.com slash questions, mm-hmm. which is where we encourage listeners to send questions. Patrick Kemp, oh, this is an Arsenal-themed question. Patrick Kemp This asks, entire time, I thought this is our friend Phil Kemp, by the way. Did you <laughs> Until really? just now. Like yes. a pseudonym. <laughs> I just read it incorrectly. Patrick wow. Kemp asks, which do you consider mm-hmm. the more impressive feat? Arsenal's 2003-2004 undefeated season, 26 wins and 12 draws, or Manchester City's 2017-18 100-point season. 32 wins, four draws, two losses. This is when they had it sewn mm-hmm. up really early, right? Um, also... When they did a Liverpool, if you will. We're going to have this as a sub-question. What if a team secures more than 100 points and only has one loss? Mm-hmm. So that's like somewhere in between. But let's start with the, uh, the, the main question. The Invincibles of 2004 or the 100-point Man City team of 2018... Which do you consider more impressive? I mean, I feel like the name kind of gives it away, uh, but it's the Invincibles. It is, right? Yeah. So why is that? I think because this is going to sound stupid, but it's the best way I can explain it, is that points are impressive, but they're still numbers, and it still feels like that sort of like, oh, a 100-point barrier. Like, that's not really a thing I cared about. It was sort of who wins the title and maybe their record along the way versus like, oh, they got 100 points, oh, they got 101 points. It still feels like numbers, whereas the number of never having a loss in that entire season is a thing that resonates much more because you know right there, like, that team is... They never lost. They're undefeated. And That's I think kind of amazing. The thing of going unbeaten is more romantic than a points total. Yes. You know Agreed. what I'm saying? There's a certain 
well, I think Preston did it in like the early 20th century or mm-hmm. whatever, and only a 22-game season. So yeah, there's something very romantic about an unbeaten season. And I think there's a reason why no one was calling that Man City team uh, the Centurions, or like it didn't have a romance right. about it because it's just a points total. Also, here's one thing I think about this is that was after Guardiola basically had got it figured out and his Man City team was just dominating like he wanted them to. And it felt a little bit like, Oh, I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. I've seen Guardiola do this with Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga. and it, So it didn't feel that weird, right? It just felt like a thing I'd seen before. Whereas the Invincibles is a thing that really you might not ever see again in our lifetimes. I, I would agree with the caveat that right now, uh, this is not intended as a reverse jinx, I promise. We do have a Liverpool team that thus far have only had one draw and no losses. If this team kept that record, say they draw like one more game or something like that, yeah. but they end up not losing... I would feel comfortable, albeit not really comfortable, saying that they are the best team in the Premier League era, maybe of all time, in England at least. I mean, I want the season to be over before I say things like that, but could they go 100 points and no losses? I mean, that would be incredible. They could be the Invincible Centurions. There there it is, right? And then that is probably the most impressive we'll see. I mean, that will be, That's my feeling. Okay, so that takes the the wind a little bit out of Patrick's Mm sub-question. What if a team secures more than 100 points with one loss? Again, I think it still comes down to the Invincibles because the narrative is oh that team that only lost once like you're still focusing on the loss or like oh if only they'd won that one game it still has that it's like slight fail yeah the Miami Dolphins aren't popping champagne when teams or they are popping champagne when teams go 17 and 1 or whenever they had the undefeated uh, season like still having that loss is a blemish even if it's sort of a very minor blemish on an otherwise impeccable resume I'd actually even go as far as saying that the Man City team that uh, beat Liverpool Mm -hmm. last year is more impressive than the 100-point team because they were under so much pressure constantly yeah. and stood up to it. And when they needed a Vincent Company strike from distance, Vincent. that's what they found from somewhere. Yep. You know what I'm saying? All right. I know what you're saying. Next question, then. Comes from Taylor Judd. Uh, if money is no concern, which professional soccer manager would you hire to coach you and your amateur soccer team? Okay, so we're back in swing with our amateur soccer team, right? Yep. We've just uh, Winter season is getting up and running with some futsal ready for the spring season. I'm tempted to say Pep Guardiola Mm -hmm. because I would like to see if he could instill the sort of possession game in our guys. I don't think it would go well. So I'm going to go Jurgen Klopp because I feel like our team would respond to Jurgen Klopp's personality Mm -hmm. more. The hugs and the the sort of more high – it's the focus on the high intensity rather than the – positional principles of play. So I actually had the complete opposite of that. Interesting. I didn't really. I had the exact thing you said. Did you really? Jurgen Klopp, uh, because... And it has to be those two, because yeah. those are the two best coaches in the yeah, world right now. obviously. And we should add, this is all based on our like surface-level understanding of them, as in, I'm sure that Jurgen Klopp is not always quite so fuzzy and lovey when it comes to training. I'm yeah. guessing there's some screaming that happens uh, when the cameras aren't on, and sometimes when they are on. But I, I think, yeah, to your point, Guardiola would be amazing, and that's the coach that I would most want, but we have guys who've never played soccer before or haven't played soccer in 15 years. Yeah, I think Guardiola would make them all quit, and I think he himself might quit because he would be sort of so demanding. Whereas it, w- it would forever answer the question: Could Guardiola yeah. coach a, a sort of non-best in class team? <laughs> I thought you were going to go with like the could Leo Messi do it on a cold, windy night in Stoke? Like no, could, do, the age-old think... question of could Guardiola manage a seventh division adult? No, but the, team? The, the old question is like: There's the yeah. people who like the, the yeah, terrible yeah, yeah. phrase for it is bold fraud, where mm-hmm. it's like he only uh, can coach the very best players because his system demands that everybody is 
Kevin De Bruyne good. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Where people wonder what it would be like if he was coaching uh, a lower a lower tier team with with lesser talent. The only boss problem that way. I know of is Thanos. This- <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think but I think one thing that we have found, and we discovered this in our indoor team. Uh, uh, forgive me, people, for talking so much about our amateur experiences, but deal with it because there's more coming. I mean, this is the question. Yeah, yeah. But I think, uh, like, go back to our the indoor team that you and I played on last, and it was the when we adjusted our style was because we played a team that was just significantly better than us. It was the the internationals team that was all Brazilians and Portuguese players, and they yeah, were yeah. technically some ex pros far right, far better well. than us. Yeah, and so we switched to a man marking high pressing system, and that was how Darryl's we were able favorite. to beat them. It should be called Daryl's favorite system. It should be because if you if you cannot ha- compete with the team tactically or technically. If you at least run at them, run with them, put them under pressure, make them make fast decisions, you're going to create opportunities for yourself. Are you yourself. saying that's a bit cloppy? And that's a bit cloppy, and I think that's what he could do is bring in the kind of high-pressing hunting and pack style, get everybody in shape, yeah. and have everybody doing that, and then you could work on the technique a little bit more. But I think that would maybe work a bit better at amateur level. Okay, next question. My only David. other thought was Carlo Ancelotti, but I feel like he would just be like, meh. We lost. <laughs> it's okay. Everyone just be staring at his eyebrows. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes from Ryan Mock. Uh, is there an equivalent for the Astros and soon-to-be Red Sox uh, cheating scandal in soccer? Or, I guess, what's the worst scandal of malfeasance in soccer history and what were the punishments? So there was an incident where uh, me and some student friends, after playing soccer, mm-hmm. we went out and we stole a bunch of road signs okay. and rearranged them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the same. I, I, I don't think that's the Stealing same. signs. I feel like you've gone literally here and I, and I understand your joke. But also, I understand your joke, but I refuse to laugh at it. Exactly. So I think the obvious, not obvious, but the answer that most people will be thinking. You how, stole a sign? I don't believe that you stole a sign. Oh, yeah. I, it's, a, it's like a student tradition in England to rearrange I still don't signs. believe that you stole a sign. I oh, believe that you were with people who stole signs. But I, I think I'm of Daryl as I'm wanted in Sheffield. See, there we go. All right. <laughs> now, now you've made this public. I don't know what the Statue of Limitations is. You could be in trouble. I can't go back. That's right. I said Statue of Limitations. You did Statue of mm-hmm. Limitations. It's the Seinfeld joke. They build it. No, it's a statue. It's statute. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the obvious thing is Calciopoli, mm-hmm. right? Calciopoli, yep. uh, 2006. The... There's a very long version of Calciopoli, which I think you suggested maybe we should save for a Soccer 101, mm-hmm. right? But the very... Which I've wanted to do for a while. It's been, on, it's been on the list, but it's one of those that we're always like, that seems like a lot. Okay, but let's, let's do it, <laughs> right? right? One day do we'll do a big Soccer 101 on Calciopoli. I'm maybe right here we'll just give the, uh, the very brief version. So it was discovered through some telephone wiretapping that Juventus's general manager, um, Luciano Moggi, um, was very, very, very influential in Italian soccer, doing things like calling the referee a sign-up mm-hmm. board and literally asking for specific referees to be assigned to Juventus games because he knew that those referees would be favourable to Juventus, mm-hmm. right? This is not as straightforward as we give you money, you give us penalties. It's more like there were refs who kind of knew that if they gave Juve calls, they would keep getting Juve games, mm-hmm. right? He also had other forms of influence where he would like talk to people who would be on TV mm-hmm. and he would help them frame the narrative. Um, and he also, through owning a sports agency, would also try and influence the selections uh, of other teams, right. right? And all of this was based on a system of favors. Like, you do this for me, I'll do this for you. So Margie became very powerful and essentially didn't fix games necessarily, but he had an undue influence over how the league would go with Juventus always benefiting. I think, I think um, 
what should I say? Allegedly is how I'll say it so we don't get sued. That's what you have to do, right? That's how it works. No, this man's banned for fo- from football know, for life. He definitely I mean, did it. All, all I mean to say is that it's exactly that. It's like technically, no, he didn't fix matches, but he fixed matches. Yeah. Is I guess what I mean Which to is say. But just not in the straightforward right. way that you mm-hmm. think about it. Like, here's a yeah. thousand euros, give us a penalty kick. Yeah. It's more like... This ref will, by and large, give us calls. Mm-hmm. Maybe put this ref on the Juventus yes. game. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was some uh, some money involved in there for yep. those officials as well. And just so one quote I got from a Guardian article, just to give you a rough idea of how how much Moji, general manager of Juventus, was working this. Um, according to investigators, Moji received or made an average of four hundred and sixteen calls per day. Wow. He had six mobile phones, 300 SIM cards. It was the early 2000s, a lot of SIM cards switching out. In nine months, he made or received 100,000 calls. I hope he was a smoker. Just, <laughs> just so you could see him trying to carry the packs and the lighters and the cell phones all at once. He'd have like yep. two bricks in each hand. Um, so the big punishment was Juventus got – they got their mm-hmm. two, two Scudettos, two championships, were stripped – um, and they were relegated to Serie B and started with negative nine points right. the next season. They still won promotion. Yeah, I mean, they still also started that season with uh, what Buffon, Nedved, Del Piero, yeah. and Trezeguet. They were doing all right. Yeah, they, 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 were, doing were, all right. they were doing all right. So they came straight back up. Other teams were involved, mm-hmm. and they, it was essentially teams that benefited from Moji's influence. And those teams were Fiorentina, Lazio, Milan, and Regina. Mm-hmm. And they all started the 2006-07 season uh, with points deductions. Mm-hmm. It was the biggest scandal in Italian football history. It's amazing that Juventus have come back and now they're just, they've been happily winning the title for the last few years, right? But, but it, yes, but then it, it also colors everything because you still have that sort of, instead of it being like, you are this incredibly dominant team, like as we were with Bayern, like who is ever going to dethrone Bayern? How are they going to do it? There still remains that like, yeah, you are really dominant, but like, is there other stuff happening? And that is kind of the nature of how big Calciopoli was, that mm-hmm. it won't go away probably in our lifetime. I feel like it will still be... It'll linger. Th- like, and I'm not saying justifiably. I'm just saying that, yeah, I think there will still be those like, ooh, that was questionable. I don't know about that one. Ooh, that was interesting. I don't know about that one. Yep. Much more so than you would get in any other league, for sure. All right, next question comes from Eric Rosner. Mm-hmm. Eric Rosner asks, oh, it's sort of Italian-themed again. It is. Could the U.S. men's national team be more successful playing an Antonio Conte-style system? So Antonio Conte is the current coach mm-hmm. of Inter who are battling Juve for the uh, Serie A title. I was trying to figure out why I had such an aversion to this question, why I was just instantly like, no. And I couldn't figure out why <laughs> until I realized that the reason why is because I, I feel like this is, not saying this is the in- intent of the question itself, but there's an element of like, should we use wing backs? Why don't we use a back three? And you and I have had that question so many oh, times. Oh, is this maybe, has Eric found a way around asking that question? <laughs> I don't think he's meant to, but that was sort of, I think, where my brain went uh, subconsciously. But maybe that phrasing worked because, like, yes, I guess it makes sense on the surface, but I think then it goes to, I guess I'm saying no, because then I think it goes to, like, yeah, like, yeah, three four two one, three four one two. Like we could put like, Pulisic as the playmaker. It gives us two strikers that can play off of each other. It still gives us kind of three center backs that can play on the ball. Yep. You know, it ticks a lot of boxes, but when you go that next level deeper and you look at what it requires of individual players and the skill set thereof, mm-hmm. that's where you run into issues. All right, there are pros and cons then. Mm-hmm. I, I went back and looked at a lot of Antonio Conte and got a good feel for how he plays, yep. right? So we all remember the Chelsea season. I referenced it earlier, right, where David Lewis was the ball playing centre-back and it was really successful that's one of the big things that Conte does he mm-hmm. plays a back three with mostly ball playing centre-backs for Chelsea it was the 3-4-2-1 but for Juve for Italy and now for Inter it's a 3-5-2 mm-hmm. so he usually plays a 3-5-2 there was that sw- slight tweak for Chelsea right so it's a 3-5-2 
ball-playing centre-backs, it's often the wing-backs are not really defenders. They're often wingers converted. And you could see that at Chelsea, right, with uh, Victor Moses, right? So mm. he often does that. Um, he then usually goes with a three-man midfield with one like uh, playmaker, deepest, and then two number eights. His original was Perlo mm-hmm. at Juventus. So that's kind of the, the ideal, right? Um, and then two strikers, usually two strikers that kind of complement each other. Uh, right now at Inter, it's Lukaku and Martinez, mm-hmm. right? So it's normally kind of a big guy, fast guy yep. uh, situation, it's right? It's going to happen there too. So, And then the other thing we know about Antonio Conte, mm-hmm. his teams play with intensity, right? So it's not like a full-court <laughs> press, but it's more like a... If you um, look up the definition of, of intensity... I think it has Antonio Conte's face or it just has the definition of, of intensity, which is what he is. Yeah, I mean, is he like dark hair, blue eyes? I think that really lends... Yeah, I'm not sure that's his natural hair, but sure. Fair enough. <laughs> but that lends to the intensity, yeah. right? So the system they play normally is they will force you inside and then have lots of numbers inside, right? The goal is when you've got the ball, force mm-hmm. you inside, uh, they've got numbers inside, and then they will break down the wing with those attacking wingers who really aren't fullbacks right they're often straight up wingers who are playing as fullbacks yep i I just realized you've just jogged my memory here on dark hair very 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 piercing blue eyes and appreciation of italian culture i feel like suddenly antonio conte and hannibal lecter are sort of like kind of yeah (laughs) and very very intense maybe i'm starting to understand why i'm afraid of antonio conte both very tactical okay (laughs) let's try let's try and apply this system Mm -hmm. to the u.s men's national team then okay so a three five two it's Zach Steffen in goal. I start to get, I'd say the weakest part of the US playing in Antonio Conte's system is that we don't have the ball playing centre backs at the level of Benucci or David Luiz or uh, oh, what's his name? The um, uh, oh, He plays for Inter right now. Scrinia? Oh, yeah. Scrinia, yeah. Or, or De Vries. Yeah. We don't have players of that quality. I would say John Brooks is our best bet. Yep. So who would be the center ball playing center back? It's probably got to be John Brooks. It's right? probably John Brooks. Maybe Tim Ream. Who's that been was my decent, guess. And then maybe Matt Miazga. I'm not sure after that. But I go Aaron Long. But I go, go Long Brooks mm-hmm. and Ream as my back three in a Conte style system. But to go to our Arsenal analysis for a moment, if you have if one of those three center backs, say one of them is hurt and you have to bring somebody else in, if one of them can't play the ball. That's the player that the other team is going to want to have the ball yeah, all yeah. the time. That's and right there, you have a vulnerability They're that like, can be easily exploited. Let's Mustafi that guy. Exactly. <laughs> right. Which is what we're going to call that so from now on. I think it's questionable whether we have the mm-hmm. type of centre-backs that can play an Antonio Conte-style system. What gets really complicated then is the, the midfield area. Mm-hmm. So he essentially plays a six, a ball-playing six, like a Regista-type six, and two number eights. Do you go Michael Bradley is your ball-playing number six? Do you go maybe Jackson Yule? Could he be the... Uh, the the Conte Conte favored number six. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really lend itself to Tyler Adams, right? Tyler Adams would be more of the two number eights, yep. right? Mm-hmm. But I could see Adams and McKenney maybe working out as the two number eights. That wouldn't be so bad. Yeah. Uh, we we do have the prolonged injury to Michael Bradley. That's going to factor into this a little bit, but maybe that's okay. more short term than anything else. But yeah, if not Bradley, then I guess it's Jackson Yule for now. Okay, Jackson Yule for now as the six, mm-hmm. and then Adams and McKenney as the two eights. Yep. Out wide, I would argue... Sejin- to be fair, Jackson Ewell is frequently called the new Andrea Pirlo, right? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe Almeida says this kid should go to Europe eventually. All right. <laughs> um, all right, so as the wide players, like yeah. I've said, they're not just fullbacks. Mm-hmm. They're guys who are very good at getting forward. I think Sejino Dest is kind of perfectly yes, set up. I would so agree. I still think he's more winger than fullback now. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know then whether the other winger should be 
let's, I don't think we should go all in with Pulisic. I kind of think Pulisic should be playing off of the striker mm-hmm. in the end. Uh, you're talking about here, right? Wing backs, but really they have to be attacking players, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So Dest on one side, Ariola, Jordan Morris on the other side. It's a little tricky about mm-hmm. who, who you choose. Or maybe do you, do you do Dest as a left-sided player and Reggie Cannon as the right-sided has player or DeAndre ever, Yedlin? Has ever, I was about to say, has anyone ever suggested Yedlin for this spot, Darren? But maybe, but maybe that could work in the uh, in oh, the. Antonio Conte system. I feel like he's softening, folks. I feel like he's softening. Well, I'm I'm asking you, which two would you go with? If we were doing a Conte-style system, the wing-backs have got to be responsible for the wide attacking. Mm -hmm. Um, Dest seems a given to me. Who's the other one? I mean, like, my instinct would be to say Reggie Cannon right now. Surprisingly, just because I still think, I think of it as more of a defensive wing-back sort of thing. Like, still getting into the attack, but you want the defensive element there, too. Maybe Ariola makes sense there. I don't think of Jordan Morris as being a... Tracking back and being solidly defensive. You've got like to have at least like 10% contribution. Yeah. Like I'm sure he right. could. I'm just saying that's not a strong suit yet. I think, actually, I think Ariola offers yeah. the most in terms of both ways. So would you put yeah. Ariola on the left then and put Sergio Dest on the right? Yes, okay. I think that's what I'd do. So let's do it then. Ariola on the left, Dest on the right. Mm-hmm. And your forwards right now, I think it is like Altador is the the hold-up guy and Pulisic running off of him. Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So that, there you go. That's your Antonio Conte-style U.S. men's national team. They would play with intensity. I think that would suit Adams and McKenney, for example. Um, so maybe this could work. But I still have doubts about the quality of playing the ball out of the back, the back three, and even Jackson Yule, uh, compared to what Antonio Conte wants to work with. Yep. I would agree with that entirely. So it could be possible, but I'm also... Not as inclined to see it tried yeah. because I'm, I don't think we have the personnel, and I think you also rule out. I might a lot get a T-shirt that says well. Mi- Minnesotan Perlo. Okay, let's do it. I think you should get it, my friend. I think you should get it. Uh, should we move on to the next question? Yes, please. Which comes from uh, Robert Cordova, I believe. Uh, how does uh, Total Soccer Show view Patrice Evra's career? Ooh, okay. So recently retired, mm-hmm. Patrice Evra. I'm spotting a theme with uh, Robert Cordova's mm-hmm. questions. Um, super successful, obviously. Loads of Premier League titles yeah. with Manchester United. Probably a couple of Serie A's with Juventus. Mm-hmm. Did he win the Champions League with Man United? He did. He was, he was there for eight-ish years, right? Yeah, I had like a quick that. look mm-hmm. at his, uh, his Wikipedia page. I do want to just go with my memories of Patrice Evra, the player. I'm going to say short but strong. <laughs> I mean, that's accurate. Short yeah. but strong. I remember Patrice Evra. If you got into a... How tall do you think he is? I have it in front of me right now. It's like five... It's five lows. Five nine, five eight. Five lows is yeah. five nine? Yes, he's five nine. Five nine? Mm-hmm. All right, so... Five eight, short, actually. Excuse me. Five eight. Okay, so short but strong, Wikipedia right? Wikipedia changed from when I clicked it, yeah. If there's a sort of uh, battle uh, in the corner mm-hmm. um, and it's 50-50, Patrice Evra is winning that ball. I think so, but I, but I, I would agree like with that. He'll body you off the ball and win it. He will, but I guess I still don't think of that as being like the hallmark of his game. I think oh, of, neither do I. I, think of, I haven't uh, got to the hallmark yet. Okay, I would go with like tidy. That's usually tidy. the adjective that I would go with to describe Patrice Ever, aside from warrior and leader and good chemistry. But I think of him as just sort of, he, he gets the job done. He has the flash moments. Like, like no mistakes. Yeah, sort of. I mean, well, then he occasionally had high-profile mistakes, but also would pop up in moments to score goals, uh, as he did against Everton way back when, to help like win the title that season. But could be in a good attacking player, but also was going to get back and do the defensive job. I think he was an all-around fullback that maybe Manchester United haven't had in quite some time. The memory I have him, the abiding memory, is like an overlapping late burst. Yep. Right? So he would like, Man United would be up on top of someone 
and Everett would just time it perfectly to burst behind the opposition defence, receive a pass from whomever Manchester United's left winger is at the time, mm. and then he would cut it back or fire a low ball across. I don't remember like big looping crosses. I remember a lot of low balls fired in very accurately by Evera to the waiting striker, be it Van Nistelrooy or Tevez or Rooney, because yep. he kind of spans the, a, across several Manchester United strikers. So that's what I'm going to say is my key memory of him, is that late burst and ball low mm. into the box. That's fair. Because wasn't he a winger? Early on in his career, I think he was a winger, so he's still got some of those attributes. That could be. Um, I think my lingering memory will, will just be for when it comes to Patrice Everett, like his locker room presence and his chemistry that he brings. You were in the Old Trafford locker room? I was indeed. But like, do, do, you remember, do you remember who his two best friends were at Manchester United? Oh, I remember videos with him and Park Ji-sung yep. and Carlos Tevez. Correct. Am Even right? though none of them spoke like the unified same language. Like I, th- I forget. Esperanto? It was – no, it was like like none of them sp- – or like like someone didn't speak English and someone didn't speak Spanish. I'm guessing Tevez spoke the Spanish there. Yeah. But they like communicated through a mix of different languages and one of them would be the interpreter for the other one. Oh, I see. So they all needed one of them to interpret. I, I believe that's how group. it was, but they were all like best friends at the same time. That is And brilliant. then there were the videos and the Euros, I think it was, when he was sort of like Paul Pogba's like best friend and mentor and mentor and they would put on like dance videos and stuff together. And I just think of him as being the kind of presence in the locker room that you needed yeah. and like brought a lot of harmony. He's moved on to being an analyst now. And there was the video of uh, – did you see that from this weekend when Graham Sunes was like, it's never a – or it should, have been a pen- or should not have been a foul on uh, Van Dyke for backing into De Gea and, and uh, uh, ever just lifts up his glass and like looks at it while he's talking, like clearly checking to see if there's booze in it is yeah. the joke. <laughs> like he's, he's just a clever, funny sort of guy and that's where I'll remember. He also – I've seen some of those clips. He also mentions that someone from Liverpool Football Club uh, when the new group took over mm-hmm. wrote to him to apologize for the Luis Suarez racism hmm. thing. Yeah. Okay. Because maybe th- there was a, definitely a thing at the time that Liverpool Football Club didn't properly um, – uh, except that their player might have been at fault, and there was a sort of an apology of that should not have happened, and we apologise. Right. So that so Patrice Ever, I remember fifty fifty. Uh, you can't beat him defensively. Mm-hmm. Late bursts, low crosses. Everyone's best friend. Yep, that's mm-hmm. that's my trio. I do know he's getting his coaching badges now as well. He might even be working at Manchester United. There's there's some talk like that maybe teams or something. he's been linked with the director of football job. Uh, which I mean, that's would, too much. How about just coach much. the youth team for a little bit? I feel like there's a chance that maybe him have, being from a slightly large family maybe is a part of the reason why he grew up or like being a good chemistry guy and yeah, having to get yeah. along with everybody. I read one of 25. You are correct. Yes. 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 And he'll also be a trivia question because he was born in Senegal. So if ever there are questions about like players who won a World Cup for a country that they weren't born in, yep. he's on that list. He didn't win the World Cup. Did he not? Oh, you're right. No. He didn't. No, he retired right. after Euro correct. 2016. A player who played for France? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Without being born there? Yeah, he's on there. Um, okay, next question. Mm-hmm. Brendan Lanehart. Brendan Lanehart asks, do soccer fans and soccer media celebrate Sergio Aguero as much as they should? According to FB Ref, former sponsor of the Total Soccer Show, FB Ref, um, his hat-trick against Villa puts him at 177 goals in the EPL, tying him with Frank Lampard for fourth all-time in Premier League goal scorers. He's also never finished in the top 10 of Ballon d'Or voting. I would also say that hat-trick against Villa put him at 177. He has since scored two against Crystal mm-hmm. Palace and the only goal of the game against Sheffield United. So he's now 180 yeah. Premier League goals and this question didn't even come in that long ago there you go um, I would say to the questions like like what, what it is actually asking yes I think there are pockets of the internet not just Man, Man City blogs or fans who really appreciate what Sergio Aguero does but I think it's not nearly as many as you would expect for what he has done with Man City and in his career in broader terms but I think it's because like 
I struggle to think of, aside from the goal that he scored against Cardiff, I believe it was, that won Man City the title. Like, that's the iconic, the Aguero! QPR, QPR. QPR, excuse me. I knew it was a team that weren't in the Premier League anymore and good riddance because they gave Man City the title. Uh, But, like, aside from that one, and it's because of the moment more so than the quality of the goal. Yeah. Like, he scores a lot of goals, but he's not the, necessarily the highlight player. He's not the big, big, huge Zlatan who's going to dominate people, but he's also not Messi who's going to dribble through a bunch of people. I, I think he's kind of one of the last of the pure goal scorers. Agreed. Like almost an Inzaghi-ish. He yeah. is deadly in the area. Yep. I went back and watched these, the three goals since the Villa goals, mm-hmm. the Villa hat-trick. So I went back and I watched the Sheffield United goal where he came off the bench to score the winner. It's a tap-in from the six-yard box. Mm-hmm. After a lot of very sharp, clever movement in the box to lose his marker, it's a tap-in, an open goal, six-yard box. Um, the two against Crystal Palace are a volley at the far post where he's wide open and a header where he's made some room for himself. So yeah. essentially, what Aguero does is dart this way and that, lose his marker, and then get on the end of crosses and passes from Manchester City teammates. It is There might be no one else in the world that can do it. He might be absolutely elite at that. But I think it's because he's basically doing, basically just doing one thing world-class well. Mm-hmm. I think we under, under-celebrate him because there's not all these other parts to his game where well, he's coming back into midfield and doing a step over and laying it off and then doing a roulette. And you know I mean, there isn't a highlight reel beyond his goals. And this is what I mean when I say that I think there are probably pockets that really appreciate him as this yeah. next-level player because I think... People who love striker were, movement, I'm exactly, sure. Exactly. I think if yeah. you have a highlight video of players getting open in space when they probably shouldn't be able to, he definitely leads that highlight reel. I feel like yeah. it's him and then Luis Suarez. They're both very, mm-hmm. very good at that. But... Like, is that a highlight reel of like, oh, yeah, he got away from that guy and then he tapped it in? It's a disservice to say, like, it's not that impressive because it's incredibly impressive that he always finds a way to make that happen. And I would go so far as to say that it is almost a chicken or the egg sort of situation with me. of like Because we think of Man City as scoring so many of those FIFA goals where it's like they pass, they pass, they pass, they pull the keeper out, they square to Aguero, he taps it in. And you think of it as like... The key key part of that is Aguero getting open, Exactly. And that's the question is like, do they do that because Aguero is so good at his movement that it makes sense to build the attack off of that? Or is he just really good at functioning within that system and thus they're successful with it? Either way, I, think I it's feel symbiotic. like he's, in, he's incredibly important in the way that Man City are able to build those attacks and a huge part, obviously, of why they've been so successful and then literally why they ended up winning silverware because, again, he scored that goal. So the answer to Brendan's question is probably soccer, media and fans don't celebrate no. Sergio Aguero enough. And also, it's just he's been scoring goals for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. When it was new and it was like, oh, wow, he's scoring loads of goals, it was kind of impressive. But it's almost like we take his multiple goals for granted yeah. and it's not impressive anymore because we've just seen it so many times. Uh, yes. And then I think this is where I ask you— He should try missing. He should try missing some and then we start celebrating when he scores. I think he's missed a couple. Um, but I, I would ask you this because I'm aware that this might be my Man United bias, but I do also think that part of it is that he plays for Man City. And it's an incredibly good Man City or coached by Pep Guardiola, and I'm not trying to say they're like a bad team or anything like that because obviously that would be foolish— But I also think that you're not going to get the Liverpool narrative of, like, will this be their year? Chelsea have different sorts of narratives, I would guess. Arsenal the same, Man United, like our Man United. But I just think of Man City as, like, aside from a few people we know, aside from people who grew up being Man City fans, I don't think that they have that dedicated of a following around the world, at least not right now, at least not when Aguero came in. And so I also think that you need a little bit of that, your team to be a beloved team or a team that everybody is fascinated by or everybody pulls for. I don't disagree with that, but I also think, like, people celebrate 
Raheem Sterling and people celebrate Kevin De Bruyne and people celebrated Vincent Company mm. and they celebrate Fernandinho. I think other players get celebrated on that Man City team hmm. more than Sergio Aguero. Okay, that's probably fair. So maybe it just comes down to I expect him to be more celebrated because he's such a key goal scorer for them. But yeah. maybe they just have other uh, more high-profile players like in terms of media coverage. I think we just take his goals for granted yeah. is what it's yeah. come down to. There we go. Um, all right, next question mm-hmm. comes from Alexander King. Alexander King, it's a personal one. Um, what is the most memorable goal you have scored? I'm not trying to be difficult. I thought about this question for a while. I do not have an answer for this. And it's because I don't really remember a lot of my goals because it's not – because there are so many. I'll tell you why. It's a crystallizing moment of – I remember in like my sophomore year of college, I was telling somebody about like my favorite goal I ever scored. And I was getting that like, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as soon as I finished, it was like, now let me tell you mine. And it was just a moment of like no one cares about No one wants favorite. to hear about it. Exactly. Well, Alexander King wants to know. Yeah, but I just – I really like – with that in mind, like I kind of made the decision then that like I wasn't going to really focus. And I don't really remember a lot of my goals. I know I've scored goals, but none that really stand out to me in that way. So that's my honest answer. All right, answer. then I've got, my f- I've got my favorite goal that you've ever scored. Okay. How about that? All right, so it's at the Bundesliga uh, media oh, game. okay. Uh, you're on the same team as Steve Cherundolo. That might be my favorite no goal. No less. Right. <laughs> and you were – Steve Cherundolo is one of your heroes, right? So you were excited uh-huh. to play with him. We talked to him a bit beforehand. It turns out he's mm-hmm. a very nice guy, he is. right? Do meet your heroes. Sometimes they're awesome. Sometimes. Um, and then you and Cherundolo, because you're a good player and it was quite a good standard – and you, I think you would up your game a little bit because you're like, all right, Steve Trundle, this is my one chance to play with Trundle. I don't know what you're talking about. You, you know what you're doing. I know exactly what you're talking um, about, yeah. And you, you and him had a few good one-twos mm-hmm. around that uh, five-a-side field. But you had one that was this incredible goal. I think you played a couple of one-twos. And then didn't he play it in and you sort he of chipped did, it in for me, yeah. He chipped it in and you did a mid-air behind-the-back like here. It's like a mid-air Cruyff turn, basically. Yeah. Mid-air Cruyff turn volley goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's got to be one, your favorite goal you've ever scored. I think your you, most memorable goal you have scored. I think you, that's probably it. You are correct. So thank you for remembering that. And I think go. you can always gauge how excited I am with the goal by how little of a celebration I have. If I don't react at all, yeah, yeah. I'm very, very you happy just, with that goal. Because you know it would be too much. Yes. If you, yes. If you let it go, it would be too much. So just know that – like. I walked away from that one like, yeah, it was a good goal, good high fives. And I went back in my head, I'm going to reel away from the mic. I was more like, yes! <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, okay, I guess I do remember that. Good call, Daryl. Thank you for uh, being my historian. I appreciate that. My, uh, my, I don't score a lot of goals, right, because mm-hmm. I'm a defender or a defensive midfielder at best. Yeah. Um, I just don't have a lot of attacking uh, verve, shall we mm-hmm. say. But my hero in the 90s was Matt Letizia. I always wanted to score a Matt Letizia-style goal. I only ever managed it once because I was only ever brave enough to try it once. So there was one goal, like, it's got to be like U15 or, mm-hmm. or something, where to throw in, it comes to me, normally I just flick on the header, hope someone else does something with it. And I thought, how about this time, I'm going to flick it over this guy, and I'm going to run around him, spin around and volley it before it hits the ground. Mm-hmm. And that went in. And I remember that being my... One only ever first and last uh, Letitia-ish goal. Hmm. I'm not sure Letitia would add this goal to his highlight reel. Don't matter. But it was the most I've managed to make something look like that. All right. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. And I like that. I like that a lot. It's, it's very out of character, and that's why it's memorable. I like that. But I like that you... Weirdly, this is where my brain is and why my brain is strange, is I immediately go to, like, what was the most important goal? What was the most interesting? Or, like, what was, like, the yeah. best, like, oh, we're down by one, see, we're in what, the state cup. What I did is I read the words in the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's not what my brain goes to, like, what is memorable to me is, like, we won the tournament. We won that game. It was a dramatic moment. Yeah. It doesn't really go to, like, the sentimental aspects mm-hmm. or, like, when I wanted to be, like, Matt Letizia. So that's, that's interesting. And, again, I appreciate you uh, having those memories. All right. Final question? Yeah. Final question Comes today. Comes from Ben Sunday. 
Lundstrom, who asks, has Lyndon Gooch's club loyalty hurt his stock? Uh, did he make the right move staying with Sunderland uh, through two relegations? Or would he have been better served signing elsewhere after his Premier League debut in 2016-17? He has eight league goals over 18 starts this campaign, but Sunderland, so dot, dot, dot. And he now has nine league goals because he scored an Iron Robin-ish. Actually, mm-hmm. really was Iron Robin-looking uh, winner for Sunderland this week. Did you see the video of the little kid that he no. retweeted? Oh, it's so good. Did there's, he retweet it? I'll have to find it. Uh, yeah, Linen Gooch retweeted it, like, this is what it's all about. But there's, like, maybe he's 10 years old. He might be 8. And he and it scores, and he reacts like a 60-year-old Sunderland fan. Like, <laughs> Get in! <laughs> like, like it's, he goes nuts. And it is awesome. <laughs> So I thought about this. Um, mm-hmm. Has Lyndon Gucci's club loyalty hurt his stock? We're not talking Robin Hood yep. stock, right? We're talking, yep. uh, I assume we're talking national team stock mm-hmm. or just general reputation stock. Yeah. Do, do you mind if I jump in just to answer? Oh, as I'm I about feel, to answer? Because I feel like you're going to give a very nuanced answer and mine is going to be swayed by that. Okay. So my initial answer was like, this is how I wanted to answer it was, I think maybe, but I want to hear what Daryl says. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to say no. Okay. Right? Because, um, yeah, he made his Premier League debut with Sunderland. Mm-hmm. Didn't play many games, right? Okay. They got relegated to the championship. He played, like, I want to say 15 games. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a regular starter. They went down to League One, and he played, yeah. I want to say, like, 38 or so games out of 46. So when they were first in League One is when he became a regular, regular starter. That was also when his contract was about to expire and he signed a contract extension. He's now contracted to Sunderland until 2022. And he said, I don't want to be known as part of a team that got relegated and relegated and relegated. And then I left. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why he stuck with them. Last year, with him in the team, they got to the League One playoff final. He was out of form and was on the bench for the final. So he wasn't even that key of a part of the team towards the end of the season. But they came really close to getting promoted, right? Yeah. So I totally understand why he would stay. And now for only the second season in his career... He's a regular starter at Sunderland at a League One team. So, and he's yep. only 24, right? So I think he's, he's only hurt his stock if you think just because he, he played in the Premier League a couple of times with Sunderland, he should be a men's national team regular. He should be a Premier League regular. Whereas the reality is he's a young or was a young American overseas looking to establish himself. He's had to go down to League One with Sunderland and have two seasons to establish himself as a first team starter at a very big club in a very bad situation. Mm-hmm. And again, only 24. If they don't get promoted this year and he stays another year and another year and he's 25 and he's 26 in League One, then yes. But right now, I think he's still on the cusp of it being smart career decision, get loads of minutes, get loads of experience. Then you get signed by like maybe a good championship team who are on the up and going to the Premier League mm-hmm. or you get promoted with Sunderland and you're back in the championship. Yeah. All right. This is why I wanted you to kind of answer first because – I think I was approaching this in the same way that maybe Ben was. I don't want to speak for Ben because he might just be asking a question. But I think if you asked me, like, is Lyndon Gooch a Premier League player? I would say probably not. But if you said, should he be in the championship? I would then be, be like, maybe, but he might be better than the championship. And yeah. I realized that so a good I, championship team is the answer, right? But I have no real reason for believing that, right? Because, like, I think it just comes down to I assume that he could function at that level because he did make some Premier League appearances. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And so then you then you will naturally see it if you see it from that perspective as, yeah, he could be in the Premier League, he could be for a very good championship team. So yeah, League One, it has held him back a little bit. But in reality, to your point, 
it actually took him playing in League One to get the minutes, to get the reps, yeah. to kind of move to where he is now. And we still don't even know if he could be a very good championship player. I think we both like to think he will be or hope he will be. Yeah. But hopefully we'll find that out. But there's a lot of hopefullys and maybes and possiblys. So I think when that's the case, it probably does come down to, even if it feels like maybe, I think the answer is no, it hasn't hurt his stock. At least not yet. Right? At least not yet. And if you if you haven't been watching this year, he's been playing, uh, Sunderland have played like a 3-4-3. Three, three, and he's been on the left side of a front three, which is kind of fun to play in. Mm-hmm. Right, so yeah. Eden Hazard did yeah. uh, for Chelsea. Uh, no, not in a three-four-three. Three, right, I've got that wrong. But, it doesn't matter. Oh no, it was under Conte, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of, yeah. So Linden Gooch playing the left side of a front three, um, and is starting every week. And yeah, if he doesn't get promoted with Sunderland this year, he could play for Middlesbrough, Derby, like one of those kind of teams, right? If he wants to get a transfer next season. Mm-hmm. So there right. we go. And we'll, and we'll slowly have Darby. America is what will happen if Lena Gooch goes there? Hopefully. Okay. All yeah. right. Uh, and if he does, we would assume that maybe we'll get some reports about it from the Total Soccer Show Scouting Network. Is Lyndon Gooch in the Scouting Network? I don't know because we've never gotten a report and he's 24 years old, so maybe not anymore. So my guess is he was, but uh-huh. his scout is... Uh, not Taking a relaxed approach. Taking a very relaxed approach, yeah. Yes. And he's kind of aged out at this point. Also that, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but we do have the scouting network to uh, to discuss today. We do. The first two are absolutely thrilling. They are. Players, well, but right? we, before we get to those, Daryl, can you explain for people who might be new to it what the scouting network is and why we're doing this? Yes, it's one of the ways that we keep the lights on here mm-hmm. at Total Soccer Show Towers. If you mm-hmm. go to totalsoccershow.com slash join, you can support the show at $5, $10, $15, $20, $25 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, any level you choose, we... Uh, um, give you a young player to scout to keep an eye on send us reports about what your young player is doing mm-hmm. and then this segment of the show is the scouting reports where we get we give the updates on these young players we didn't do many when we were in baltimore so we've got a lot to do today <laughs> Also worth mentioning, uh, if you subscribe at $10 a month or more, we guarantee to answer one of your listener questions per month. Mm-hmm. So thank you to the people who ask questions and subscribe at the $10 a month. Oh, That's, yeah. uh, that was some good questioning. And now we've got some good scouting to get to, starting with Dan Landau, scouting Giovanni Reina, the 18-year-old American midfielder for Borussia Dortmund. Midfielder slash attacker, maybe? Yeah. Uh, after scoring eight goals and 16 appearances for the Dortmund U19s, Reyna made his Bundesliga debut for Dortmund this past weekend in a 5-3 win over Augsburg. Uh, he either played, he earlier played for the senior team in their winter break friendlies and scored from a tight angle and then added an assist in a 4-2 win over Feyenoord. Lastly, Reyna's Instagram story suggests that he has developed a friendship with Dortmund's new striker, Erling Holland. Uh, so maybe they'll just become best friends on and off the field, score many, many goals, and have much, much success. So this is the path, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, as they say in The Mandalorian, this is the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you get your break in the winter break, yep. whether you get called up from the U19s to the first team. They give you a bit of a run out. And then if it looks like you've got it, then for the second half of the season, you're in. This is what happened to Pulisic. I mean, I remember, I remember this exact progression with Christian Pulisic. I was yes. watching grainy little clips from Dortmund's winter camp and thinking like, oh, he's playing. Oh, he got that assist. Oh, that's really, really yeah. exciting. And it went from there. So Giorena is now. It's a player I'm really excited about. And mm-hmm. it seems like Borussia Dortmund are really excited about it. They keep, they, uh, like for the last few months, they've been saying things like, he's ready, he's ready, mm-hmm. he's ready. And I've been going, show me, show me, show me. And now it's finally happening. Whether he, He's not going to start every week for Dortmund, but it looks like he's going to be part of the first team match day squad. And it's what, late January now? The next US friendlies are in March. Mm-hmm. He has got time to get enough minutes between now and then to make a case for being called up to the March friendlies, especially because those friendlies will be in Europe near his home. So what I'm hearing from you is Gio Reyna to Chelsea confirmed for winter of 2022? 
That might be too late. Okay, maybe that 2021. All right, cool. Late. 2021 it is. Let's let it. Let's just enjoy him getting in that Dortmund first team to start with. <laughs> Fair. Basically, Fair. if Sancho gets sold, then mm-hmm. Reina is like next on the uh, on the stepping ladder. Right? That makes sense to yeah. me. Stepping ladder is that right? Yeah, whatever. Right. I know uh, what you meant. Next scouting report: Devon Kaifa is scouting Erling Haaland, 19-year-old Norwegian striker for Borussia Dortmund. Um, after coming on for Lukas Piszczek in the 56 minute for Borussia mm-hmm. Dortmund, Haaland scored a hat trick in his Bundesliga yeah. debut in that same game that we talked about with Reiner as Dortmund defeated Augsburg 5-3 so Haaland actually making Giovanni Reiner look bad in terms of debuts sort of sort of yes although I think it's a high bar there for Haaland yeah and as we talked about on the weekend review 3-1 when Haaland comes on it finishes 5-3 a decent turnaround from Dortmund so every goal I've only seen the goals right Mm -hmm. but every goal that I see is Haaland the big target man centre forward running in behind with pace which I remember us talking mm-hmm. about that was the reason Haaland is such a valuable soccer player yep. it's soccer IQ it's his height and strength but also pace running in behind that's a little bit of everything yeah and then just finishing ability you kind of want that in a forward he yeah. seems to have that to a decent degree see, oh, you, you and I were just talking off air about how it looked like as well Haaland's presence mm-hmm. seemed to benefit Jaden yep. Sancho because yep. when Haaland is running in behind it's panicking defenders it's pulling the shape out a little bit it's making more space that mm-hmm. Jaden Sancho can then exploit we could have a real team on our hands in Borussia Dortmund yeah for they're the going to score some goals I would yeah. keep watching that team for sure uh, and we'll see what happens there we'll see what happens uh, with Lucas Toussaint scouted by Matt Koss uh, Lucas Toussaint is the 22 year old French defensive midfielder for Lyon for now uh, exciting transfer rumors between Hertha Berlin and Lyon are becoming a reality Berlin's first bid of 20 million euros for Toussaint was rejected but Lyon currently are contemplating a new offer of 25 million euros the rumor is that they will accept the offer provided Toussaint is loaned to Lyon to finish the season, similar to the Pulisic, Chelsea, Dortmund situation of last year. And this is Jürgen Klinsmann's Hertha Berlin, right? It is indeed. Yeah, right. I'm assuming he's still there? I don't know if the yeah, coaching badges yeah. situation has well, been so resolved. I've just realized this was overblown, right? Wasn't it? Klinsmann said it was just that he had the, the, qualica- the documentation, mm-hmm. but he left it back in his California home. So he says, yes. So he says. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's gotten someone to go and pick it up. Or I mean, I, there have definitely been times when I told my teacher, oh, I left my homework at home. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> so I will bring that project in later. <laughs> but he can't just go off and do some coaching badges real fast, right? I don't know. You don't know what he's capable of. <laughs> James Chaka is scouting. No, I think you're probably right. Dwayne mm-hmm. Octavius Holmes, the 25-year-old American legend for Derby County. Is that your words or is that James's? That was my words. You both would have been right. Um, James says, Dwayne Holmes scored a stunning volley in the dying minutes to salvage a 2-2 draw against Middlesbrough. Okay, we saw this, right? I know about this. This this was his first goal of the season. And while Holmes has been a stalwart presence in Derby's midfield, he can, quote, lack refinement in the attacking third, unquote, as our friends at Scuffed observed in November. They're no longer our friends. With Rooney's recent addition to the Rams roster, this could optimistically be a sign of more production to come. Scuffed, you're our friends again. It was a brief uh, suspension for you to get your heads right. But now All we're right. friends. It lasted 10 seconds. Right? Ben Sundstrom scouting Joshua Pinedath, 17-year-old Dutch-American winger for Ajax. Uh, after th- or for 13 glorious minutes on January 13th, there were three Americans all on the field for young Ajax. Uh, getting his first Erste Divisie minutes since October, Pinedath was subbed on at left mid in the 77th minute. It became clear he was an out-of-position winger when he was given a straight red in the 90th for a hard tackle from behind, leaving Alex Mendez, Serginho Dest, 
and the rest of Ajax down a man for injury time against rivals Young PSV. Uh, there were actually four Americans in total playing in that game, but Young PSV subbed off Chris Richards in the 65th minute. Chris Gloucester. Uh, Chris Gloucester, excuse me, before uh, Pinedath could make his appearance. Oh, so we nearly had four. We nearly had four on the field. It was. And maybe, maybe Chris Richards was in there. You don't know. He was I, not. I'm pretty confident he was not. He was in a whole <laughs> other country. Guy Yedwab is scouting Serge Gnabry, yep. 24-year-old German wide forward for Bayern Munich. Guy says, 2020 has started with more difficult news for Gnabry. He ruptured his Achilles tendon just before Christmas. Ouch. And reports are that he won't return until late February. With Gnabry and Coman out with injury and Perisic underperforming, Bayern may look to strengthen on the wings this month. Push Alfonso Davis forward. Give him a go. That'd be fine. Here's my question uh, for Guy and for you. I don't mean to like question Guy. Maybe he's reporting something that's been reported or maybe I just don't know things. But my assumption is that if you rupture your Achilles, that is a fairly invasive procedure that requires a decent amount of surgery, I think. Yeah. To fix. So, you know, Hugh? Yeah. Uh, do you remember Hugh's girlfriend, Jenny? Uh-huh. So she ruptured her Achilles, uh-huh. had to get a boot. Right. Like it's a surgery and then you have to wear a boot and mm-hmm. it's a long, long, long recovery. So he says he did this just before Christmas, but will return in late February? That seems optimistic. I could be wrong. Maybe it wasn't a full I rupture or something like that. But that that stood out to me. So I would love to hear more about what the situation is there. I'm going to trust Guy's reporting. All right. Uh, and I trust Mike Phelan, probably not the one from Man United, although if it is, Mike, do better. Uh, scouting Hannes Wolf, the 20-year-old uh, Austrian midfielder for Leipzig. Hannes is back, says Mike. Uh, he made his way back into the first team at Leipzig following a broken ankle suffered in the U21 Euros this summer. He made his Bundesliga debut as a late sub in a win against Hoffenheim and then did the same thing against Dusseldorf so far he's only played 14 minutes but that is certainly better than nothing I like Mike's optimism Katie Sutton is scouting Katie Cousins the 23 year old American Mm -hmm. midfielder Katie Sutton says Katie Cousins is training again just 8 weeks after surgery on her shin however she was not on the final list of players who declared for the NWSL draft and was therefore not eligible to be selected Uh, as a bullet point I assume this is uh, Taylor added this it is our colleague Travis Clark from Top Draw Soccer predicts that Katie Cousins will end up signing somewhere in in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, so was the absence from the draft all injury related or could it have been I'm going to Europe? I do not know the answer to that, but my assumption is that it was injury related. Okay. That if you because I I'm guessing then that if you lock yourself in with an injury into the draft, you're definitely going to have your draft order drop down. There was some speculation that she would go. I think as uh, Katie Sutton wrote in her initial scouting report that she could go as high as the 13th pick. So okay. I think if you're Katie Cousins and you're aware that if I do get drafted, it's going to be with an injury. So instead of being in the first or early second round, it will be probably in the fourth and round. she could legitimately say, this doesn't represent me. And also, maybe you're not going to get as much money as a result. Whereas oh, if you go course. to Europe fully fit and impress, yeah. then you're going to get a contract. Then maybe you move back to the States if and when you choose. Because from, from what I've seen and heard, mm-hmm. um, Katie Cousins is a very ball-secure midfielder. Yep. Like yes. Really hard to take the ball off of is what we've heard. There we go. That's what happens when you play in Richmond, so everybody should move here. Uh, John Adams, <laughs> not that one, scouting uh, Shayon Harrison, the 22-year-old English striker for Almere City. You know, we've never clarified. We assume John Adams is referring to John Adams, the second president. He has never clarified if he is John Quincy Adams, and I would like to know that. Maybe his middle name's Quincy. It could be John Quincy Adams, in which case, nice redirect, sir. Uh, Shayon has been on the bench for Almere City's last four matches and has not played a minute since December 2nd. There is no news of an injury, and he has been in the matchday squad, but just isn't getting on the field. He is still the club's leading goal scorer uh, with seven goals on the season, but Almir also have the fewest goals, uh, only 33, of any of the top 10 teams in the Erste Divisi. Uh, so John concludes, I don't know what any of this means, but it doesn't seem ideal that a team that needs goals is sitting their leading goal scorer. 
Rich Nazaro is scouting uh, Matko Milejevic, the 18-year-old Argentine-American for Argentinos Juniors. Matko has played five games and scored one goal with Argentinos. After representing the Argentina U-20s, he's joining the USA Under-20 camp for the first time this week. Yep. Uh, thus far, he has been non-committal about which country he will represent. That much is clear because he went from one camp to the other. The pause is me debating whether or not to sing the national anthem. <laughs> I was wondering what you were doing, and I just chose to move on quickly before you had the time to choose. <laughs> Thank you for rescuing me. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dylan Tilbury scouting Cole Bassett, 18 years. Do you know how long that song is and how difficult it is to I sing? I know that. I was trying to pick a line that was singable, uh-huh. and I realized I couldn't sing any of it. What were you leaning towards? Um, something about Through the Night. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> it was going to be like, and Through the Night, Matt Coe was still there. <laughs> He was, now I'm going to let you sit in that uh, Dylan Tilbury is scouting Cole Bassett, 18-year-old American midfielder for the Colorado Rapids. I blinked at Daryl. Uh, Cole was called into that same U-20 camp. He started the first friendly against Mexico. For, to clarify, the U-20 camp that we started talking about 45 minutes ago before we talked about the national anthem. Uh, he started the first friendly against Mexico, scored a brace in a Dos Acero win uh, against Mexico. Dos Acero's uh, back. His first saw him beat a defender, and his second saw him finish near post on a low cross. He did not start the second friendly against Mexico that was played with a heavily rotated squad so Mm -hmm. anthony hudson yeah new u20 coach Uh we were not thrilled right but i remember saying he has two friendlies against mexico at the end of this camp and Mm -hmm. maybe we could start to feel optimistic a 2-0 win and then the second game i believe was a draw that's the beginnings of some optimism for you certainly Uh, that is wonderful for you i i would rather see a larger sample size before we, uh, before we get too excited about things. Okay, that's fair enough. Mm. Chase Paul is scouting Getson Fernandez, 21-year-old Portuguese midfielder on loan at Spurs from Benfica. Um, just days after... I'm just messing around <laughs> with the pronunciation uh, from Benfica. Chase says, just days after his 21st birthday, mm-hmm. Getson joined Tottenham on an 18-month loan with an option to purchase for $73 million in the summer of 2021. Mourinho could pair him in the middle with Dyer or Winks, utilize him as an attacking midfielder or out wide on the right options Philip Andriani scouting Andre Green the 21 year old English winger on loan at Charlton Athletic from Aston Villa uh, Green scored in the 5th minute of Charlton's 2-1 loss to Preston North End uh, who are his former club hold on to that for a moment uh, it was a simple finish that he slotted past the keeper at the near post he was so happy to score that he wheeled away and slid on his knees to celebrate in front of the Preston fans uh, that was not particularly well received he did take to Twitter afterwards to ensure them that it was nothing personal I do find myself wondering if this was a little bit of the sharing situation when he switched from United to City and then he, when he was subbed out he went to sit on the Manchester United bench even though he was a City player <laughs> like I wonder if Andre Green was just so used to celebrating with Preston's fans that he went to celebrate with them even though he scored for the other team I forgot about this so Teddy Sheringham played for Man City for mm-hmm. a I, that's completely Sheringham gone from my Michael. memory yep. wow weird right Joseph Meadows is scouting Azrael Gonzalez, excuse me, Azrael Gonzalez, 18-year-old American midfielder for the Tacoma Defiance. Joseph says, Azrael, the rest of the Defiance, and the Sanders Academy have all traveled with the Sanders to LA for preseason. This is an opportunity to show Brian Schmetzer what he can do as he will be given a chance to practice multiple times with the first team over the next few weeks. I'm now checking Teddy Sheringham because I feel like I maybe just remembered him subbing out. And, yeah, he definitely did not play for Man City. Uh, it was for West Ham that he did that swap. That was when he uh, switched benches. It's Schmeichel is the one I'm remembering where he stood on the wrong side of the tunnel because he was playing for Man City there and stood go. on the, uh, the home team side. There we go. But Teddy Sheringham but did confuse the benches. thank you to everybody who yelled into their headphones, yep. you didn't play for Man City. We definitely 
definitely heard you, and that's why Taylor looked better. And we definitely would have gotten some letters. Uh, Josh Dollar scouting Blake Bodily, the 20-year-old American midfielder for the Portland Timbers. Blake is officially a Timber. The Timbers Academy product Timber is forgoing his senior season at Washington and signing a homegrown player contract with the team. Daryl made himself laugh. He had a breakout year leading the Huskies to the quarterfinals of the NCAA tournament, was named Pac-12 uh, Men's Player of the Year, was a semifinalist for the Mac Herman Trophy, and was a first-team All-American. He will most likely spend the bulk of this year with uh, Timbers 2, T2, in the USL Championship. T2, Judgment Day. <clears throat> Mike and Max Outschuler are scouting John Choo-Choo Hilton, Choo-choo. 18-year-old American wingback for Young FC Volendam. Young FC Volendam! Um, <laughs> What are we, Migos now? Uh-huh. Um, after being a consistent Mama. contributor <laughs> for Volendam's U19s this season, Choo Choo has been promoted to Young Volendam in the Dutch Tweeda division. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that's the third tier, right? Um, Hilton has been uneven in his first two games, both starts. In the 29th minute of his debut, he was beaten by a chipped through ball, which led to Volendam's keeper being sent off. In the next match, Hilton gave up a soft penalty for Excelsior's first goal, but then redeemed himself by being involved in the build-up for Volendam's second goal. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Well, well done, Choo Choo. Well done, Mike and Max. I'm going to say well done to me a little bit. I cannot tell you how many more times I've wanted to do the Migos ad-libs in that scouting report, but I figured we'd reached the end of you finding it amusing and would have one more would have crossed us into you finding it annoying. Yeah, we, we could have got – we would have gone all the way through annoying and back to funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, uh, Mike and Max wrote uh, soft in parentheses by the soft penalty, and that like was crying out for like, soft. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you to everybody for the scouting mm-hmm. reports. Again, if you want to sign up, it's totalsockshow.com slash join. If you've joined and you haven't received your scout, email me, Daryl, D-A-R-Y-L, at totalsockershow.com. Mm-hmm. It only works if you spell my name right. D-A-R-Y-L at totalsockershow.com. Come. D-A-R-R-E-L-L at TotalSoccerShow.com. No, don't confuse people. Um, Okay, um, links to today's sponsors will be in the show notes. And then we'll be back tomorrow with what we're planning, um, news you might have missed. We're going to have a big newsy catch-up, stuff you might have missed over the last week or so in the big wide world of soccer. Until then, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we'll be back again tomorrow. 